0: Hello and welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. Joining me in my home studio today is composer and longtime colleague Brian Harrington. Born and raised in the big thicket of eastern Texas, Brian's musical life was largely shaped by his family's involvement in church music. Sonic and psychological traces of both a fervent religious upbringing and its soulful music permeate his music. His music has been performed by groups including the London Sinfonietta, the New York Youth Symphony, the BBC Singers. He's won awards including the Royal Philharmonic Society Composition Prize and the Morton Gould Award from ASCAP. Recently, his music was selected for performance at the American Composers Orchestra Earshot Reading Program by the Berkeley Symphony, June in Buffalo, and the Wellesley Composers Conference. Brian is a founding director of the Intersection New Music Collective based here at Sam Houston State University, where he also teaches composition and theory. Brian, welcome to the show, and thanks for being here. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right. Um, so... Uh, I always like at the beginning of the show to uh, get a little bit of background, and in the bio, that your newest bio on your website, you, you say that your musical life was shaped by your family and the, your family background, and you cite several family members as being influential. Your grandmother, your father, and then one of your uh, preachers, uh, who you said played the piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and how this kind of upbringing and, and the musical environment that you were in uh, found its way into your work?
1: It's funny because for a long time, when uh, if asked if I came from a musical family, I would say no because I had no trained musicians in my family. But then uh, later in probably grad school, when my compositional voice started to reflect where I'm actually from rather than just composers that I had admired. Um, I began to see their influence. Uh, I grew up in a small town on the rural outskirts of the town. Um, and our house was kind of way off the road in the, in the big thicket. And we went to a, a a small church that was part of a Pentecostal denomination. Um, Pentecostalism, since a lot of people won't know that it's, um, emphasizes a really really ecstatic form of worship and a belief that the uh, uh, that a, a spirit takes over and the person begins dancing or ta- it's talking in tongues or something you find ecstatic worship like that all over the world in different traditions so my father was what's called the song leader which means that he would stand up in front of the church and choose the hymn he would pound the pulpit with his fist to keep time. And he had this really high kind of country tenor voice that's really stuck in my uh, head. And this this type of music I'm talking about is not known to a lot of people. It's difficult to communicate what it is. It's kind of a country, gospel, Pentecostal honky-tonk. And if I had been born probably even 10 years after I was, I was born in 76. If I had been born 10 years later, I might have missed out on that because a lot of that music's gone by the wayside. It's actually related to very rural music but also camp meeting music from the 19th century revival occurrences that uh, occurred in American history. So my father was the song leader. My paternal grandmother had a really striking high country tenor voice that I remember. My mother played piano by ear. Um, And, you know, for example, in in my upbringing, when friends would come over to the house, inevitably everyone would end up around my mother's upright piano with hymns, you know, sing. And they all had great four-part harmony, almost like, what most people think of as like barbershop harmony or something. They had great harmony, call and response uh, aspects to them. And then, yes, we had a preacher named Brother James West, who when he was playing the piano, he would, you know, in this tradition it's believed he would be possessed by the Holy Ghost. And uh, he would play like crazy. He would kick the top of the keyboard with his uh, foot and, you know, uh, abuse the piano. And, well, the reference to Jerry Lee Lewis is, is not coincidental, though, because he grew up in that, Pentecostal tradition. Um, as did his cousin Jimmy Swaggart, who was a Pentecostal television of angels okay. that fell from Grace. Yes. Famously. But, but anyway, so those are the musical influences and those those sounds are very much in my head.
0: I'm interested to know sort of well, a couple of things with this background thing, but um at what point did you find contemporary art music. Uh, At what point did you discover that? uh, I would ask that question first. And then the next one to sort of follow that would be, at what point did you decide that, or or knew that you wanted to be a composer?
1: Um, When I was very young, probably in about third grade or so, uh, I didn't know musical notation, but I would um, make symbols on notebook paper that would... represent, um, melodies that I was thinking up in, in my head. And then I started taking piano lessons and I learned how to actually write music. Um, and from the moment I began taking piano lessons in fifth grade or so I filled up blank, you know, manuscript paper with, uh, with music. Really odd thing for some reason, all of my early music sounded, uh, extremely Jewish. And I had a fascination with Jewish culture. I think it may have come from um, my, again, my paternal grandmother. Like my paternal grandmother subscribed to the Jerusalem Post and always had shekels, and because she was very fascinated with Bible history. And it, so it's odd it came out of that kind of fundamentalist fascination, but, you know, it introduced me to that. And uh, then I began taking piano lessons with a, a teacher who was also at the local college. So he really grounded me in the. Like Morton Feldman says, he had a piano teacher that taught him not musicianship but musicality, and that's kind of how I felt about this, uh, Mr. Collier, Jay Collier, in our in our hometown, hmm. and he encouraged me to compose uh, very much, and you know introduced me to the classics. Anyway, he had a piano library. Uh, like an encyclopedia of piano music. And I immediately just gravitated to the 20th century. I I saw this Charles Ives music that I didn't understand. I saw Scriabin. And um, I think part of that comes from the fact that growing up in a small town, since I was a kid in a small town going around with all of this stuff in my head, obviously I wasn't going to fit in it was kind of inevitable that that was going to happen. And I, I guess I always felt a little bit like a, maybe a uh, an outsider or something like that. Even in, in my family, I felt like an oddball. So I think this odd music maybe resonated um, with me and seemed to strike a chord that nothing else had. And, of course, during that time, I was into the fervent music of my parents' church, but like, I didn't like country music. I, I, you know, I didn't like the culture that I was surrounded by. It would be a long time before I could come back around to that. Did I, did I answer all of your questions? Yeah,
0: no, no, okay. no It's fascinating. And so, uh, so you decided to then study composition in college? And you, you eventually ended up in London, but tell me a little bit about the, the, the journey. Yeah, there are to, a few steps. Between. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about those <laughs> okay. steps before you get there. Well,
1: so my piano teacher, very important to me, Jay Collier, um, he uh, looked at my early efforts and he began taking them to Mark Satterwhite, who at that time was teaching at Lamar University in Beaumont. And uh, Mark Satterwhite wrote back and he said, there is a quirky humor at work here in the music that I find interesting and he said I think I was a, either a sophomore or a junior in high school and he said please consider coming here to study so anytime Dr. Satterwhite had a recital or a presentation at Beaumont I'd drive down there from uh, Silsby from my hometown but then when I was getting ready to graduate and go study with him he said I'm going to the University of Louisville so I, I was I was set in at Lamar I had some great teachers there including uh, Frank Felice who was a wonderful teacher and um, he introduced me to a lot of music that blew my mind. Some music I probably wasn't ready for yet, but has, has since become very formative to who I am. And then Dr. Satterwhite was at the University of Louisville, and that's where I went for grad school. It's a wonderful school because they do the Graemeier Award. When you go there, you have access to all the scores and recordings of all of the Graemeier applicants, not just the winners, but the applicants. And then you get to study with whoever the winner is. And the winner when I was there was uh, Simon Bainbridge, a young younger composer at that time from uh, from the UK. And at the beginning of his residency there, he did not like my music. I was still writing music that I would say sounded a little bit like kind of watered down Barber or Prokofia for something. I still I hadn't found my voice. But while he was there for two years, and by the second year, I had... Begun to find my voice, and at the end of that time, he said, "You should consider coming to the Royal Academy of Music to study." So, that's that progression. And and then, and then, so you did. Yes. Then, yes, I went to the Royal Academy, and I should back up a little bit to explain that change that that happened. Yeah. Um, The summer before I went to the University of Louisville for grad school, I, you know, I would drive around with my friends, and we would go to all these little places in the thicket and take pictures and just spend the day exploring all of these places. And I think that and the thought that for the first time I was going to leave my home area um, really began to make me think about who I was, um, you know, what, what what's my musical DNA. And so already before I went to grad school, I wrote a string quartet using like Southern hymnody. It looks kind of naive to me now, but it was it was an important piece at the time. And then when I, when I got to grad school, both uh, Mark Satterwhite and Steve Rouse, those were my composition teachers, uh, Mark Satterwhite helped me to develop a post-tonal language in particular, which, which was good. He helped me refine that. And then Steve Rouse was as interested in vernacular music as I was, I think, and he gave me a great piece of advice, which was to find whatever that vernacular sound is and just kind of splice it up and dissect it. And see what happens if you take those little moments and just explore them for a while. So it won't sound like the vernacular music anymore. And I actually haven't used the word vernacular music in a long time. I hate it now. I hate that phrase.
0: (laughs) Why is that? Why why?
1: I used it so much in my dissertation for the Royal Academy. And it's become such a a catchphrase. I I mean, you can't go to a conference without people throwing that term around. um, And, you know every piece is gonna try to use electric guitar or drum kit or sax or something like that to evoke. So I'm really very leery of the term vernacular music. Also because when people use the term vernacular music, they're often, there's kind of a cultural tourism that happens um, where they're lifting superficial elements from that vernacular music and serving it to you in a slightly different form. Whereas I would rather, to use an analogy, I would rather just kind of compose with an accent, you know, rather than... Because my philosophy is, I've written pieces that are inspired by um, bluegrass fiddling, right? But my philosophy is, if you really want to hear bluegrass fiddling, you there are bluegrass musicians that you go listen to. Don't come to me for that. I'm not going to give you a, a cheap rendition. What you're going to hear from me is something very, very refracted, and I, re- I can't help it if you listen to it and then say, oh, I didn't hear that reference, or... You know that's not really that's not really my concern. So I'm just leery of that term. Mm-hmm. It's got a cachet now, or whatever.
0: There's a word that uh, I'm pretty sure I came up with it because uh, I don't believe I read it anywhere uh, to describe Peter Garland's music and uh, all of the sort of Native American influence in that. I came up with this idea of abstracted resonance. Mm. And for in his music, in particular, he was taking. The, the sound world of Native American music, so the drums and the rattles, um, and even some more obscure forms uh, like the um, some of the uh, Indian villages in Mexico were using, you know, small harps and, and violins and guitars and things like that. So he took those sort of resonances and, and his music is made from that, but also sort of some of the philosophical ideas about ritual. And so, but when you listen to that music, when you see it, you don't think Native American music, you, you know, it's very clearly contemporary music. And I feel like I would use the same term to describe your music, abstracted resonance. And, and I think you've just, Exactly defined what it how how it is that you do it you know because um, I I know just over the years having listened to your music and and hearing little wisps of the you know the the hymn or the whatever the thing is that you're drawing mm-hmm. on and it and it comes through it sort of it floats in and out of this compositional language that you have it's a really fascinating mm-hmm. uh, sort of thing I I can't think of any other composers who who do that in the same way that you do so I think that's really great and interesting too that you have found that. And that's, and that's really your voice. I mean, it seems like looking at all the pieces that seems to be kind of the thing that you have done with your body of work, right? I mean,
1: it, it is. And I mean, um, there, there are some younger composers that I know like so few that I feel the kinship with them. But I do feel, I do feel like I'm in a slightly lonely territory because my scores Oh, I'll tell you a quick funny story that perfectly shows where I am. In 2006, I went to Darmstadt and I got it and I sent a score and I got a letter saying that they were going to play my score on one of the concerts and I was over the moon and I got there and uh, there was a young pianist and he had been working on my piece and then he had a, you know, the, um, the faculty member came to our rehearsal. And it was a very animated rehearsal. And I was explaining that even though this looks like Carter Night Fantasy on the page or something like that, I was explaining the swing and the, the boogie and the, and, and the bass and the, that gospel feel. And after And he got it and he was very committed to it. And afterwards, the faculty member, who shall remain nameless, <laughs> came up to me afterwards and said, my student will not be playing your piece on the concert. Uh, when I got your score, I didn't know it was going to sound American. <laughs> and then said, I'm wondering when the real, I don't want to hear American. I wonder when the real you will come out in music. Okay. And I'm thinking, well, do you mean because it doesn't have the anonymous Darmstadt sound? I mean, what what do you, and, and first of all, i you should be able to look at the score and tell that it's going to have that rhythmic groove or whatever. So I feel like, that's where I am a lot because my music, it does, it has a lot of detail. Um, it's a post-tonal language, a lot of post-tonal technique goes into it, but the sources are very simple. And so it's, um, sophisticated enough that it requires performers that are used to that kind of music, but it's a performer that's willing to embrace, I guess, possibly what might be conceived slightly naive or, um, not culturally relevant. I don't, I don't know. But anyway, I'm lucky to have found a lot of performers that, that, that do understand it and, and, uh, and that do get it. And, you know, that aspect of walking that fine line between not being obvious, like avoiding natural realism, I guess you would say, and my own voice, that's what makes composing exciting for me. And the feedback you just gave about things coming in and out of focus, that's what, uh, excited listeners always say. They always say it's sort of, but it's not. It com- comes in and out of focus. A huge part of my dissertation at the Royal Academy focused on Faulkner studies. And in particular, the way that Faulkner is able to imbue even an uneducated redneck character with uh, language, for, like in As I Lay Dying, with language that they could never used with their educational background or their, you know, their cultural background. Although he also has a, a perfect ear for, for ca- capturing real dialect as well. But we accept that in Faulkner because the trade-off is he's telling us something about the character's inner life that we might not have gotten through really, really, you know, realistic uh, dialect. And so I find uh, an analog with that in my music you know that that concept of i want you to sound like someone singing in a high country tenor voice but the melodic line is not a folk song transcription right i want you to the to play with a really kind of gospel groove but there there it's not blues harmony it's not exactly hymn harmony so that that Faulkner influence was very important and literature also gave me my breakthrough regarding time for a, the thing that the dead end that i was in for a long time even through my doctoral studies unfortunately is i kept there's a kind of a ritualized um, rondo form that it works for these composers and it's great and i love it but like crumb um, a lot of early boulez a lot of early burt whistle when he's very ritualistic he uses it's kind of a block you know juxtaposition it's kind of a, a rond ritualized rondo is what i would call it hmm. and i used that for a while and it just wasn't working for me And the more I looked at literature, the more I began to think about the way time passes. And the book that really kind of blew everything open for me was uh, To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. And you read the opening section and you get to know a family. And in the middle of the book, you turn a page and 20 years has passed. And people that you had just gotten to love are kind of, to me, casually mentioned as having died. You know. And so that's why now I don't use any kind of preconceived uh, form. Uh, I have no idea what the form is gonna be and I rely a great deal on constant changes of emotion and character and tempo and that sort of thing, which Elliot Carter was my kind of my model for that, I think.
0: Well, let's, uh, let's maybe look at a particular piece then, and maybe you could kind of talk us through some of the, uh, some of your ideas. Okay. Uh, uh, the piece that I would choose would be a piece called that blood's too red. Mm-hmm. So first, maybe could you describe that piece? Uh,
1: the folk song is a, a beautiful folk song, uh, that was actually collected in the 1940s in the area that I'm from over in the, uh, in the big thicket. That particular folk song isn't. Several of the folk songs are sung by Rod Drake from Silsby, who that's, he's not a direct relative of mine, but that's, my people are all Ards and Drakes. And um, so it's a folk song about a brother who has murdered his brother in the field. And he comes home and the mother asks him how he got the blood on his uh, sleeve And he gives many different answers. And the mother, the refrain is that blood's too red for that, my son. You know, come tell me what the blood really is. How come that blood on your shirt sleeve, son, come tell to me? How come that blood on your shirt sleeve, son, come tell to me? It is the blood of the old gray man that plowed the fields for me. Here's the blood of the old great man that plowed the fields for me. That blood's too red for that, my son. Son, come tell to me. How come that blood on your shirt sleeve? Son, come tell to me. So, um, I wrote this for Daniel Sines at, uh, at Sam Houston and Brendan Kinsella. Uh, they collaborate together as a duo a lot. So, the cello. It, well, in the opening of the piece, the cello really gives us the tune verbatim, but I'm incorporating all of that flexibility and ornamentation that you would have in a, in a folk, in a true rendition of it. And to me, the piano represents, I think I say in the program, notes like an authorial voice. You know, it's kind of painting that canvas behind everything. So often the the cello will surge ahead with a melody and then suddenly sustain a note, and the piano is giving kind of a psychological insight. Now, I'm not thinking about any of those things while I'm composing. All the things that I just said, that's after the fact thinking about it. I'm thinking about, I'm actually a very, very physical and visual composer, so when I'm writing for Daniel, uh, I have cello neck out in front of me, and I'm thinking about what the fingers are like and all of that sort of thing. For Brendan, I'm thinking very much about the physicality of the piano without, I mean, I'm sure you'll hear relying on any muscle memory of... Uh, pianistic cliches or something. You know, you just really rethink about that physical act of playing the the, uh, keyboard. It's uh, like a lot of my music is just kind of freeform Rhapsody variation on that tune.
0: things that you wrote in the notes uh to sort of echo what you were saying is uh and i I could just read it and maybe you could respond but you you said i don't think uh in theoretical terms while writing for me it's even simpler the cello is the vox humana Mm -hmm. Am i saying that right vox humana and the piano represents something like nature surrounding the man those east texas tangled thickets like gothic cathedrals with dark creeks winding through them, as well as those occasional stretches of pasture in which tones sail away toward the horizon and die. Yeah. It's beautiful, man. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and and I
1: should say briefly,
0: very important
1: aural imprint on my mind is I grew up playing the trumpet, and of course I had to practice outside. And so our house was surrounded by that kind of thicket woods uh, across the street. The neighbor, which is that's very far away, had a clearing for their cows. And I very distinctly remember the, the, the different sound when I would play my trumpet into the thicket or I could turn and play it into the pasture. I would often turn and play it toward my grandmother's house. You know, she liked to hear me practice the trumpet. So, But, but not he, in the house, outside. No, yes, I did not. Yeah. And so neighbors would always comment about how, how much I was improving and how beautiful it was. So, But but no, the, the, those resonances of nature I, I do because you can go in under in the these thickets of trees and you have just years of deposit of uh, pine straw on the floor and then above you it gets caught in the canopy and it does feel like a cathedral it's a very mystical yeah place so
0: yeah yeah i've been around in east texas some it's amazing how i have
1: to be careful east texans they get east texans get very uh, so i'm from sillsby which is just right under the first county that usually gets called East Texas. Okay. Oh, East Texans get, Oh, if, if you say you're from East Texas and then, and they know I'm too close to Beaumont, they get angry, but it is the big thicket of basically East Texas. Okay. But I, I just know some people get it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's <laughs> funny. You know, uh, I had on the last show that I did was with this, uh, uh, Texas filmmaker. Oh, I heard that. Yeah. Heard oh, that. you listen yes, to it. I listen, yeah. Um, so and, and Steven is from this tiny, tiny little town, right? In 200 se- people. Yeah. 200 said, yeah. people in South Texas. Uh, he actually didn't say which town it was but it doesn't matter you know it's somewhere in south texas this t- i can imagine this tiny little town but i in that show i talked about the movie bernie and there's that scene where mm. the guy describes the five different parts of texas yes. and uh I, I watched i re-watched it online after i said that because I, yeah. I didn't quite say it right on the show but it it nails it perfectly it is it is know? yeah it uh, but that that story takes place in in, uh, East Texas. It does. And so you kind of get a sense of the, if, if anybody's listening and want to know what people sound like in East Texas, that movie pretty much, it gets close. It
1: does. And the, is it the thin blue line? The oh, Earl he, Morris? Yeah. Yes. That, that's a murder that took place. Um, or rather the murderers were from Vider, that kind of area over there in East Texas. So that's another great,
0: okay. Yeah. The Earl I Morris. Yeah. Philip I, uh, Glass,
1: yeah, that, has a lot of characters because the interviews and yes. things in
0: that film. That's right. Well, uh, back to this, back to this piece. So okay. we've talked about how sort of the, the cello sort of sings the folk song. How do you go about f- deciding when and how that sort of weaves in and out of your, your, your co- sort of, you'd call it a post-tonal compositional language. How do you decide when those tonal moments sort of come through? Is that, that's totally by feel. Do you, you said you don't think theoretically about it. How do you decide when it's time to weave that into the texture? Right.
1: Well, the main thing that I do is uh, all of the post tonal techniques that I use, they're very, very personal adaptations of it. And I actually tend to use parts of the tune and incorporate it into that technique. So for example, in fact, I don't think of my music as being atonal. I'm being serious, I don't think of it as atonal. I think of it as extremely modal. It's constant. Yeah, so it's extremely modal. So you get the cello for just a moment, and then you get those cellos ideas in maybe just such radical transpositions all of a sudden that it's disorienting to you. But really, if you break it down in the pitch class sets and all of that. um, I mean, I guess it's not fair. When I say that I don't think theoretically, I mean that, I'm, I probably would be more accurate to say I'm not philosophizing about you know culture and that's what I mean because um, I actually do work with, I do think in terms of inter- intervals and rotational arrays and things like uh, things like that. Another important precept, I guess, when I'm composing is when I'm composing, um, when I compose that cello line, that's very free and natural and and again, I'm not referring to... Uh, some detailed field recording I'm just it's the way I would sing it right so that's the the way the cello does and then the piano comes in with really really intricate you know maybe a series of four or five chords that I worked out very painstakingly in my compositional activity in the same in the same way that I get very tired of doing very intricate work and I want to relax and let things flow I incorporate that into the piece because I feel like listeners are that way as well, right? So the listener will have kind of expansive moments that they can experience, and then moments that are quite intense, moments that you would have to listen to it a few times if you really wanted to claim to grasp uh, everything that's happening. And then there are other moments in this piece where I go and I work and I'm tired, but I know, to take a break and then resume with the same rigor, right? And just keep, keep your listener's head in it for, you know, for for that period of time so
0: well let's let's talk a little bit about the sort of creative process and how you work could you talk a little bit and and it could be in reference to this piece doesn't have to be but how do you how do you like to work you work at a desk with a piano next to you do you like to I mean how is it that you physically like to set up your your uh, studio and work
1: yeah, I sit. I sit at the piano, and I have. I have a desk, um, and I try not to be too doctrinaire about it. I don't. I don't work at a computer, and I personally have a long, a lot of strong feelings about working in software. But of course, a lot of people compose music into software. It's just it doesn't work for me. I mean, same thing with writing. Whenever I need to to write prose or whatever, I cannot. I cannot type. I have to do it, you know, that's just how my. Because I don't want to delete my mistakes. I want to see all the mistakes because they might be a reservoir later. So I'm a big, big sketcher. I just mm. sketch, sketch, sketch. It gets very, I end up having to keep, you know, folders of these are the sketches for the opening of the piece or whatever. And um, just a tremendous amount of sketching, a tremendous amount of thinking things through. And then what often happens is I'll, my early sketches may not have a tr- as much rhythmic detail as the last sketch. So for example, I might write the cello line somewhat simple, but then I go back in and think if I'm the musician and I'm thinking like the folk musician, what really, what there are many more ornaments that I might use. There are many more grades of, of volume changes that I would make. And that's a, a distinction I would make. I have a lot of detail in my score that certainly is not theoretical that, and it, it's not me trying to be elitist or difficult or anything. It's actually has to do with the belief and the kind of the uniqueness of that individual that's making the music. You know, I want to give them a lot. I want to reflect a lot. This imaginary folk singer, whoever they are, you know, I want to honor them with trying to capture every, every detail. So I, I keep adding more and more detail, But I have a lot of, um, I guess, mechanisms in place that keep the music from becoming obtuse. I also then, for example, I've I've very often written out things that'll involve something that looks very complicated. But when it's said and done, I get it into manageable meters, right? You know, so I'm working out the sketch and you end up with five, seven, five, seven, eight. And really, you can get it all into, I'm a believer in that. If you can then go back and get it into, you know as long as it doesn't destroy the integrity of the music.
0: Right. Not making it overly complex just for the sake of complexity. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That makes perfect sense. Well, um, let's see. Uh, Let's make a pivot and talk about some experiences that you've had uh, recently. You've had some really great opportunities in the last couple of years with the earshot recording session. So I'd like to hear about that. And then in, I guess it was 2013, you were at the uh, June in Buffalo and yes. the Wellesley Conference and also the Cleveland Composers Recording Institute. All of those kind of jam-packed into two. Uh, that one was just... That was uh, one summer. One yeah, summer was 2013. Was 2013. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. amazing summer. Yeah. So uh, would you like to talk about any of those uh, experiences? Anything stand out to you as being particularly memorable or interesting?
1: They all were. Probably the most amazing thing is that... Uh, I think maybe two weeks after finding out that I had been accepted to all of these, which included performances. One of them included the Wellesley included a commission for a new piece. Uh, Our landlord called and said, we had to get out of the house in 30 days. So, (laughs) so we were, so we were homeless and fine. And, but now we own, own a a beautiful house with a lot of land. So it worked out. Okay. But, but I really mentioned that I didn't think I was going to get the, uh, the Wellesley piece written and it was written for Tony Arnold. the Fantastic soprano. And, um, I really had a struggle figuring out what that piece was going to be about. And at that time I was traveling a lot and going to shape note singings, um, which are the one I, I always, um, went to one in, uh, McMahon, Texas that was held in a little primitive Baptist church. And, um, your listeners can, it's easy to, to investigate that and find out what that music sounds like, but it's, um, uh, I I knew at that point I was so immersed in it that I wanted the music. It was going to be about. It was going to somehow reflect that shape note experience, that shape note tradition. And so um I in looking through uh, the lives of some of the hymn writers for the Sacred Heart, there was a woman named um, uh, Sally Lancaster, who had written a couple of hymns. And she was born in Georgia and she got brought to Texas when it was still kind of you know wild country. By her husband, and a, through a lot of research and a lot of help from some um, Sacred Harp scholars, I got letters that she wrote to her mother about being a being a woman and being thrust into this bizarre situation, and having all of these tunes in her head that. She just doesn't know what to do with it. It's a little bit like a, the a room of one's own kind of thing. The Virginia Woolf, you know, being a woman and you're not don't have a place at the table. I don't, I don't I'm not saying I understand a, a woman's experience and culture. I do understand that balance of domestic life and, and creativity. And it just the letters are so sweet. And she's asking she's confessing to all of her family. Mother, I have these tunes running through my head day and night. Um, I don't know what to do. That's a refrain very often through it. I, that's a refrain. I don't know what to do. Talking about being disappointed. She thought Papa was going to come and he didn't come visit her. And so I spent with the blessing of my wife with all of that going on, you know, she just said, you, you have to get this piece written. This is important. And I got it and I didn't know how to finish it. Didn't know how to finish. It was a, it was a, spiritual you know experience getting this piece done because by the end of it I felt like I knew this person this Sally Lancaster and I couldn't figure out how to end it and one day I noticed that she ended a letter saying I've included pieces of music for you guys for Bud I can't remember the names but like Bud and Lou and John there's pieces and then at the end there's a postscript that says I had to leave out two pieces on account of the weight and that just really resonates, you know. That's just such a beautiful statement. I've, I've, I have managed to make this music. I'm sending it to you, but it costs too much. You know, it's just <laughs> such a beautiful, and that's the way the piece ends. And it, it's just, I, I still remember the day that I had that epiphany that that's how the piece uh, should end. And it was wildly received. And Mario Davidovsky, the main thing that was, what he came up to me afterwards and he hugged me and he said you are the real deal (laughs) after he heard the the piece that was worth it and tony arnold was so wonderful and and supportive through the process and
0: amazing yeah
1: she was a, a great collaborator it was wonderful
0: and uh, is that piece uh, available on your website can we she can people uh, she put it or? on her website okay. as an
1: example of her work and you know there are restrictions in terms of how sure. much I do I have an excerpt of it on on uh, SoundCloud. so um, yeah yeah that's that's available to be heard so
0: well so what are you working on now what's new what's next what's happening well um, last year
1: Last spring, in the spring of 2014, I wrote the poet Miller Williams, who a lot of people won't know, and that's that's the case in poetry too often, a lot of Americans won't know. But Miller Williams is a very important uh, Southern poet. If, if anyone does know him, they may know that he gave the second inaugural poem for Clinton. He, he read the second inaugural, the poem at Clinton's second inaugural and uh, taught in Fayetteville, Arkansas. He founded uh, the New Orleans Review, just very, and he's the father of Lucinda Williams, the Americana singer, yeah. Okay, okay. So it runs in the family, the, yeah. the poetry and everything.
0: Sure.
1: Um, so I wrote him and asked for permission, and I didn't hear back, and I'm so thankful. One day I picked up the phone, it's kind of brazen, looked up what I thought was his phone number on the internet and called him, and I'm so glad that I did. Um, and he gave me his permission and his blessing. And anyway, that's a song cycle, so uh, it's it's a heavy thing to to drop in a in an interview. It's awkward, but uh, we had a tragedy in our family. Our our oldest son was in a horrible accident that left him with a, a traumatic brain injury. So needless to say, last summer I didn't think about music, and I didn't think about the Miller Williams poems and then our our son has has slowly recovered and at the beginning of this year i thought get it together this song cycle is not going to write itself you you owe it to you and miller williams and miller williams died in january Uh, you know it's just devastated for you know his him and his family and just what it means for you know for southern literature and all that sort of thing so um but it's kind of nice, though, now, because since the accident, it's kind of odd. I, I told you before that my pieces don't have any preconceived form, and I just find my way through it. I know this may sound melodramatic, but I think composers or creative people will understand. With my life being turned upside down like that, I actually have found that, for the time being, that I can't handle that complete unknown looking in front of me. I've... I've tried working on an instrumental piece um, this summer and I just couldn't do it that old way of loving that lost feeling, you know, and trying to seek it out. So I seem to be entering a period where I'm going to set poetry a lot more because that gives you, you know, and I've reached out to several young Southern poets whose poetry I'm setting. And, um, and so of course Miller Williams is gone, but he's kind of like, Virgil, you know, he's leading me through the underworld or <laughs> right, something while right. I write. So I think, and, and, um, cause you know, it's, it's interesting, George Rockberg, the serial composer, uh, he, when his son died, I, I believe this is true. I mean, I know that the anecdote has gotten around a lot that that really precipitated him going back into neo-romanticism, hmm. um, I think to kind of deal, deal with the, uh, pain. And I think that, of course I was working on the Miller Williams poems before the accident happened but I think that sense of having having words there to guide you words to respond to even that slight sense of communion that you have with these poets that you're that you're collaborating with I think that that's uh I think that that's helpful and I have a lot of instrumental music that I that I do want to write and that I've been You know, sketching on it's just I just I did find that that was kind of an interesting psychological byproduct of it.
0: Yeah, I've I've always um, had a had a preference and interest in pieces that were um, either had spoken or sung text. You know, that's kind of something that I've been really interested in when I figured out that that was something that I could do as a performer. And I sought out pieces that did that. And so it's interesting how, um, text can generate ideas and music in a way that it, 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 an abstract uh, concept sometimes doesn't. Um, or at least, at least that's been my experience with it. And, and from what I hear you say, maybe you've had a similar, uh, resonance with, with setting texts.
1: Oh, absolutely. If I, and I mean, I didn't mention that and we we're talking about my biography or whatever. I'm um, if I had not gone into music, i probably would have gone into studying literature because I mean in my spare time,' that's, that's what I do a lot. And so to me, the act of setting um, the text, it's um, both spiritual and intuitive, but it's also an act of, of uh, it's almost an act of literary criticism or, or interpretation. you know You find so for example, the poems that I drew out of one of Miller Williams collections, he didn't group them that way, but I'm finding associations, and I, I'm the kind of composer that does try to make somewhat obvious connections for the listener. If I feel that ideas in different poems are connected, then I'll make it clear. So it's it's a form of literary analysis. So that's an activity I enjoy. So you can incorporate it into composition. So.
0: So you mentioned uh, other Southern uh, poets that that your younger Southern uh, a younger generation. Uh, who are these poets, and who should we be who should we be reading and checking out?
1: Well, uh, one in particular that uh, I would turn you on to is J. Scott Brownlee, and uh, he's from Llano, Texas. And I don't exactly know. Do you know where it, Lano, Texas
0: I, is? I think it's in West Texas.
1: It's, it sounds like a West Texas it place. We'll West have to Texas. Let, I want to say it's actually more central, but I, I could be wrong. But it's it, a small. It sounds
0: tumble. like a place that uh,
1: it sounds like it's on a plateau or something with tumbleweeds, but it's not.
0: Uh, it is smack dab in Central Texas okay it's uh, just west of Austin
1: so uh, so J Scott Brownlee I um, I'm, I'm, I'm serious about my interest in literature and I and I've subscribed to a lot of uh, to a lot of journals and uh, you know you kind of alternate them around so you get different tastes or whatever and I just came across his poetry and it had all of this just imagery it's just all imagery from my childhood just you know catfish in a live well uh catfish strung up and being skinned on a on a line lots of imagery although his background is baptist rather than a pentecostal denomination all of that working through the guilt that it you know that struggling with the god of your childhood kind of thing so after the miller williams i'll begin working on uh his and in november he's Coming out with a book called *Requiem for a Used Ignition Cap*, I think that's what it's called. Mm-hmm. So he he sent me, you know, kind of uh, co- a copy of that, a working copy ahead of time, so I can select poems. So I think I'll continue to do that. And I and I found several other uh, figures in journals that I found that I that I want to uh, to work with. But uh, and actually, I th- he I believe he told me he plays trumpet. So and, you know, it's interesting. Poets are, are very pleased whenever people reach out to them. They are. Yeah. And I think especially from a different discipline, because we know that within one's own discipline, there's often a lot of supportiveness, but there's so much competition that I think when someone from another discipline reaches out to you, it's, it's nice. It's very rewarding, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, and, uh, frankly i've I've enjoyed working with poets and and other artists almost more than i've enjoyed collaborating with musicians on sure. projects you know sure it seems like there's an, a real interest that they show in in your work and vice versa that 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 exists across disciplines that maybe doesn't uh, for it's, whatever whatever dynamics happen in in musical circles
1: it's true i I would say the only to me the only um the fear i sometimes have i'm sure you've noticed this phenomenon so let's so you you're you're completely up on the most sophisticated music right and then you might meet someone and you have your taste in literature and you meet someone who is so up on all the latest trends in literature that you sort of feel like a philistine when you talk to him have you ever had that experience of course yeah. and, and so that that's one thing that you have to get around. Have you ever noticed that, you know, you reach out to other people in other disciplines and they're doing avant garde art, but if it's not, but they want to listen to Pink Floyd, they would never listen to Stockhausen. Of course. Or, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of, yeah of course. Yep. Yep. Thanks. So, so we can all grow from each other and learn from each other.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, we should probably wrap up here in the next few minutes. Um, so, I, I always like to, unless there's anything else that you'd like to talk about, no. I'd I like to close by getting some advice or wisdom about living and sustaining a creative life. And you can take that in whatever direction you'd like, be it a more practical idea or a philosophical idea. I'll
1: tell you what I told my son the other day. I told him that I had just had a piece played in Hong Kong, and he said, How does it feel to be a successful musician? And I said, I'll ask one when I see one. I don't know. So, <laughs> you know, my perspective, I, my perspective really has been skewed. Not, uh, well, skewed is a negative term. Um, it's been altered maybe for the better, I guess, with the crisis that happened uh, last year. I just have a such a different, um, I guess what I'm saying is that I don't know. And this may be useful advice for somebody because you may develop your scheme for balancing everything, have it all together, and then you just never know. Uh, and so that's not very p- pleasant advice, but that I think that's useful for most people to think about because I think just to bear in mind how, I guess, illusory the order around you is, and... Um, I guess that's kind of bleak, but, but that's, a, you no, know, but that's, that's a, life. That's, yeah. uh,
0: and, and everybody has, uh, I mean, everybody at one point or another deals with, um, illness or sure. tragedy or, you know, a loved one mm. dying or something like that. And those things tend to or can throw some people's lives into complete disarray. If yeah. they're, you know, um, especially if it happens unexpectedly, mm-hmm. it, which is the case, you know, for you. And, um, you know, that's, perfectly understandable that that would
1: I guess along that line then my my advice would be the reason that things have not completely gone you know to hell in a handbasket after this is because we have supportive family so maybe i would say be very nice to your family and keep keep a tight support group always around you because you never know um maybe that's useful advice because i do think it you know actually I think that's a lot of what I've, I've learned is that in my creative life I have very often walled myself in and felt very self-sufficient and just my head is so much in what I'm doing and then suddenly something like this happens and you, you need people or people are giving you unsolicited help and that sort of thing so maybe maybe that's another thought I could give is to kind of beware that self-imposed isolation because you know that's not always sustainable so
0: well and uh, you said something earlier uh, about your son saying what does it feel like to be a successful composer and i I would throw this back to you that uh, you know I've always and I you know I tell students this you know you define your own success and sometimes I feel like that's a cliche, you know, and they look at me like, okay, well, that's easy for you to say right. or something like that, you know, um, cause they don't have a job yet and sure. they're looking at what, what am I going to do? You know? So what, what does that mean to you? Like, I mean, I know you said you don't feel by saying I'll ask, I'll ask one when I see one, you, you don't feel like a success. So what, what does success look like for, um, for you? Well, I
1: tell you, I am successful in this re- regard. I, I am, I write exactly the kind of music that I want to write. I really do believe, you know, there aren't that many classical composers who came up from, you know, rural Pentecostal culture, whatever. So I do feel like I'm a success and I do feel like that I have successfully cultivated a very personal voice. So I do feel happy about that. There's no piece of mine that I know of that you could ever find a you know clip of on the internet or something or hear a performance of that I'm embarrassed of or that feels like you know hack work or 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 anything um, anything like that. So I do I do feel successful in that sense. A great hindrance, and this would also be advice I think. I did let perfectionism. Hinder me a great deal because I was aware all through grad school and doctoral studies that the music that I was writing was that I knew it wasn't my voice yet. I just knew it wasn't, and therefore I would often uh, I would often refrain from sharing music with performing groups, uh, which that's a little bit foolish because if you look at the biography of, of a lot of composers that, that that you might admire, you'll notice early on a lot of pieces that you haven't heard of, but it got him connections and, you know, they did, uh, that, that sort of thing. So perfectionism can be dangerous, but it's, I don't know. It's also a good thing. You just have to balance it.
0: Well, and I think for somebody maybe who's just starting out with, uh, composition or really any kind of creative work is that at some point you have to learn to let go of the work and let it have Mm -hmm. a life of its own away from you. Yes. And that can be a difficult step, but an important one. Absolutely. Wouldn't you, would you agree?
1: I would. If, if, if I were talking to a young person that was going to study composition, I, I might tell them to go into uh, marketing or something. (laughs) (laughs) Get a day job.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I've had several people, you know, in the course of doing this podcast, uh, artists of, of various levels of, uh, well, how can I say it, like not levels of success, of course, but various levels of making uh, money or making a living from their work. Sure. And in some cases, I, you know, I'd point to Tom Nunn, who was recently on the show, um, who works at a law firm and is loves mm-hmm. his job has nothing to do really with his creative work other than he gets cardboard boxes from, the, from the law firm. Um, but you know, he, he makes a, a very good living doing that. And then does his art does exactly what he wants to do and doesn't have to worry about. And he even said on the show, you know, uh, uh he was getting his PhD and he said he found out really quickly he didn't want to go into academia. That's what mm-hmm. most of his colleagues were doing. Mm-hmm. And, and that just, he didn't want to do that. He wanted to live where he wanted to live, which is, you know, uh, in, in academic jobs we we go to where the job is. I don't yep. know if that's been the case for you. If you wanted to be in this area and that's why you're here or if if the job was the thing that the jobs I should say that right, got exactly. you here or
1: well, well and you know as as far as working outside academia, I mean I teach at Sam Houston, um, but as far as working outside academia, I think that's what more people will do. I mean the the old models are they're going extinct. You know, we're entering a whole new a whole new uh, world. Well, you know, in our case, we, you know, our family, we homeschool our family, which is, but I'm I'm not a, a religious nut. I always have to give that caveat or something when I say I homeschool, they think we have 15 children named Jebediah <laughs> and Josiah and the girls are wearing flower sacks and dresses or whatever. But um, it's a secular homeschool group, actually. Uh-huh. But uh, we homeschool our kids and we have this whole network and it's so wonderful to be, to not live in Houston, to be, but to be close enough to Houston to have access to the gigging musicians from Houston, and access to the cultural events in Houston. So it's a it's a really wonderful place to be, and it's not too far from where I grew up, so I can go home and visit. So yeah, it's a it's a it's a very ideal location, I think. It's a good home base. Yes. Yeah.
0: Great. Well, um, anything else?
1: Nope, not that I can think of.
0: Okay, well, Brian, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for uh, coming down to the to the home studio. So far, you're, the I think, the second person that's ventured down into my basement here. Well, thank you
1: for having me. It's very nice.
0: <laughs> yeah, thank you for being here. All right, thanks. And with that, we conclude this episode of Standing in the Stream, Conversations with Creatives. Again, I'm your host, John Lane. You can follow me on Twitter, at that john lane you can find the show links and show notes on my website john-lane.com and follow the show on facebook simply search for standing in the stream thanks to danny clay for our theme music you can find him online at dclaymusic.com i'll be back next time for more conversations with creatives thanks for listening